Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Sarah Thompson, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. The World Health Organization released the first ever fungal pathogens priority list in 2022, several years after drawing attention to concerning bacterial pathogens. This new priority list sheds light not only on the lack of attention given to invasive fungal infections, but also the concern for increasing resistance. Several new antifungal agents are coming through the pipeline, attempting to ameliorate drug resistance and other management challenges. Pharmacist Natalie Hagee discusses several new agents that provide alternative formulations, circumvent barriers of administration, and introduce novel mechanisms to cover current gaps that exist in antifungal coverage. A rumble has been brewing in the fungal jungle and several new antifungals are coming to market. Some with new mechanisms for the first time since the early 2000s with better, uh, with promises of better coverage, tolerability, and ways to combat rising resistance. Will the rumble be enough to fill our current gaps in therapy or will there be something left to desire? Now, we will be reviewing our objectives for our presentation today. We'll be reviewing the advantages and disadvantages of traditional antifungal agents, discuss novel antifungal agents in primary literature evaluating their safety and efficacy, and identify the role of novel antifungal agents in our antimicrobial therapy. So why bring up antifungals now? Well, besides wanting to challenge myself to a game of tongue twister, um, in October of 2022, the WHO released their first ever fungal priority pathogens list. This included 19 fungi, which were deemed a threat to public health and highlighted notable uh, resistance and issues with administration of antifungals. For the sake of this presentation, we're only going to be focusing on 14 of the most clinically relevant fungi. These were grouped based on the WHO's set prioritization criteria, which included acquired or intrinsic resistance, average case fatality rate, number of new cases, average length of hospital stay, required following diagnosis, proportion of patients suffering long-term complications, and accessibility of evidence-based treatment. Of note, we will be touching on number of different Canada species, including Canada albicans and Canada oris, as well as mucoralis, aspergillus fumigatus, cetosporium, and lamentospora. Now, let's dive briefly into the history of our antifungal agents. The first widely marketed antifungal was nystatin, a locally used polyene, which was discovered in 1950 by Elizabeth Lee Hazen and Rachel Fuller Brown. From there, the first-line agents that we use for systemic fungal infections came to market with the introduction of amphotericin B in the 1950s. We did not see our first azole therapy until nearly three decades later with the introduction of myoconazole and ketoconazole in the 1980s. This rem those remained as the only antifungals until the arrival of caspofungin in the echinocandin class in 2001. This rounded out the three major classes that we use for the treatment of invasive fungal infections today. As we glance at our timeline, your reaction might be, well, hey, we actually have quite a few antifungal agents. 
However, if we look closer by our color coding, we can see that uh, there are only three major antifungal classes. And right now we have to acknowledge that of those three classes, there's only two unique mechanisms in order to attack our fungal infections. On top of this, most of the agents that we have are only administered via the intravenous route, not to mention that those that can be taken by the oral route have a mess of side effects. With this new perspective, we appreciate that it has been over two decades since the introduction of a new mechanism or unique pharmacokinetic properties to tackle the existing barriers for antifungal treatment. Until now, and without a moment to spare. Here is a visual representation of the three major classes that we currently have for our invasive fungal infections, our azole class, echinocandins, and polyenes. Starting with our azoles, which includes medications such as ketoconazole, fluconazole, and posaconazole, this class of drug works on inhibiting the synthesis of ergosterol, ultimately decreasing the integrity of fungal cell membrane and leading to cell death. This class of medication is accompanied with a substantial list of frequent class-wide adverse effects, including nausea, vomiting, liver enzyme elevation, and QTC prolongation. I will note, however, that the one exception to QTC prolongation is savoconazole. This is not to mention that several of the agents also have agent-specific side effects, with itraconazole causing potential worsening of heart failure, hyperaldosterone being linked to posaconazole, and vivid dreams with voriconazole. Further, there are significant drug interactions as these, as these drugs work on our CYP450 enzymes, primarily the CYP3A4 enzyme, which we are aware is responsible for a lot of drug metabolism. So we would expect that this would cause substantial drug interactions with groups such as steroids, antimicrobials, antiretrovirals, opioids, cardiovascular agents, psychotropics, and oral contraceptives, quite frankly, only to name a few. On, on top of this, over time, some resistance has emerged um, with three proposed potential mechanisms. The first being a change in drug target. Some of these genes associated with this include ERG11 in our yeast species, Overexpression of target, um, theorized to be the overexpression of ergosterol um, in the presence of our azole therapy. And then finally, overexpression of efflux pumps, which essentially would just kick out our azole therapy before it would be able to exert its antifungal effect on the cell. Next, we will be covering our echinocandins. This class includes our caspofungin, andalofungin, and mycofungin. They work to inhibit the synthesis of 1,3-beta-D-glucan synthase, a component of the fungal cell wall. This results in osmotic instability and ultimately cell death. This class is overall well tolerated with most of the adverse effects being related to our infusion reactions. However, it is only offered as an intravenous formulation, making it difficult for use in the outpatient setting as this would require at least daily infusions for a number of our patients. On top of this, resistance has also begun to spring and in some species with the mutation of the catalytic subunit of the 1,3-D-glucan synthase. This has been linked to a few gene mutations, most notably the FKS mutant found in some of our Canada species. Finally, we'll be covering our third major class, the polyenes, with the agent that we'll be focused on being amphotericin B. This drug binds to ergosterol in the fungal cell membrane which leads to the formation of ion channels in the fungal cells, causing proton loss and depolarizing the cell, which ultimately leads to cell death. We'll note that ergosterol is also the mechanism in which our azole class also works. The biggest issue with this medication is tolerability. 
The medication can be profoundly nephrotoxic and as well as may cause some fusion-related re reactions that require pre-medication. This intolerability was worked to be surmounted by the addition of three new formulations, um, which included amphotericin B lipid complex, or ABLC, liposomal amphotericin B, or LM, and amphotericin B colloidal dispersion, or ABCD. Probably a pretty one easy to remember. Despite having these lipid formu formulations, however, to circumvent the lack of tolerability of this drug, these formulations are often out of reach as a result of the cost of these medications. Further, amphotericin B is also only supplied as an intravenous infusion, posing barriers for a patients who may need this medication in the long-term in the outpatient setting. Resistance tend to be species-dependent, including some strands of Canada albicans, tropicalis, paracelosis, and luteinae. Pictured here is a quick diagram that shows the coverage of all of our antifungal agents, uh, with the first five being our azal class, echinocandins, and then amphotericin B. Again, we are going to go over these specific fungi as these were the ones that were on the WHO list and that were also deemed as clinically relevant for the this, for this scope of this presentation. To orient you to the key, our green check marks are representative of antifungal agents that have reliable coverage to these respective fungi, with the yellow representing variable activity and potential resistance and X indicating no activity. To briefly go over our coverage, Azoles, as a class, has decent coverage of our Canada species, with the exception of Canada glabrata and Canada oris, with only some intermediate coverage. The incidence of Canada oral resistance continues to rise in our azole class, making it difficult to choose this agent for treatment. We also lack reliable coverage for mucoralis on top of fusarium, cetosporium, and lamentospora. Echinocandins we see in our graphic ultimately offer excellent coverage for our, or for our Canada class, including our troublesome species found in Canada oris, as well as Canada glabrata. As we examine our gaps in coverage, we do notice that it does lack activity against mucoralis, cetosporum, lamentospora, and cryptococcus slash dimorphic fungi. Finally, for amphotericin B, this really offers the broadest spectrum of the three classes that we have, dis have discussed, but also noting that it too has some gaps. With uh, lack of activity and some moderate activity to our fusarium species, and then no activity to cetosporum and lametospora. When we break these issues down into three major buckets, we're looking at tolerability, methods of administration, and rising resistance. What we see here on, on our slide is the introduction to four of the agents we'll be talking about today, uh, including resifungin, abrexifungerp, alorafilm, and phosphonogepix. How do we hope that these will cover the gaps that we have identified? However, to break things up a little bit, we're gonna start with our first assessment question. Which one of these is the major disadvantages of our azole antifungal agents? Rising resistance in Canada species, only available in IV formulation, cause profound nephrotoxicity, lack or lack coverage of aspergillus. All right. So the majority of the audience, um, I would definitely agree with, the answer would be A, rising resistance in our Canada species. That is not terribly surprising with the extent in which we use this agent for Canada species. B is not correct, as the azoles are available both orally and via intravenous formulation, but echinocandins and amphotericin B are only offered in our IV formulations. For C, 
that is also incorrect, as that is what we're concerned on with our amphotericin B agent, whereas for our azole agents, we're generally more concerned with hepatotoxicity versus nephrotoxicity. And finally, D is not correct, as a number of the azole agents demonstrate activity against aspergillus per a review of coverage, with the only exception being that aspergillus is resistant to fluconazole. So this first set of drugs that we're going to discuss are medications that have the same mechanism as our previous agents, but offer some unique pharmacokinetic uh, properties. For the first on our list is resifungin, uh, which you guess probably based on the suffix is related to our kinocannon class, inhibiting the 1,3-beta-D-glucan synthase. This new echinocandin goes under the brand name of Roseo and is currently FDA approved for invasive candidemia. It possesses similar side effects to our echinocandin class, aka it's pretty well tolerated. What is most unique about this echinocandin is that it can be administered only once weekly due to its incredibly long half-life. This has been implicated in the treatment uh, for invasive candidemia in the outpatient setting, and it has been theorized to be used later down the road for uh, antifungal prophylaxis for candida, aspergillus, as well as nomocystis. I want to draw attention to the fact that, that this echinocannon is still only administered intravenously and is not available in an oral formulation. In the RESTORE trial, a multi-center, double-blind, double-dummy, randomized phase three clinical trial, the study team compared IV resifungin to IV caspifungin for the treatment in adult patients who had systemic signs and confirmation of candidemia or invasive candidiasis. The goal of this trial was to assess the primary endpoint of global cure at day 14 and 30-day all-cause mortality, and the safety endpoints related to adverse events as well as death. The trial, uh, what we looked at for our dosing was that resifungin we used 400 milligrams in week one, followed by 200 milligrams weekly thereafter, and then caspifungin we used 700 milligrams on day one, and then 50 milligrams daily from that point forward. What we can notice from our outcomes for cure, death, and also the number of adverse effects that were experienced by patients is that resifungin and caspifungin had relatively similar outcomes. So we were able, so we can conclude, as well as the authors were able to conclude, that resifungin was non-inferior to caspofungin, and so it can be a great option for patients who would otherwise receive caspofungin. Next in this group of class of same mechanism but new uh, pharmacokinetics, we have a brexifunger, taking the plate as a triterpenoid fungicidal agent that disrupts the formation of 1,3-beta-D-glucan. So it's a kind of can-like, if you will. It currently undergoes the name Brexifem and is FDA approved for the treatment of vulval vaginal candidiasis. What is most unique about this medication is that it's offered in both an intravenous and an oral formulation with exceptional bioavailability about 30 to 50%. It is also incredibly well tolerated as we'd expect for our kinocandin drugs. Not only that, Abrexifunger maintains activity against FKS mutant echinocandin resistant isolates, that gene that we mentioned earlier that has been tied to our echinocandin resistance. An analysis from uh, Shinexus, the drug company that manufactured this drug, Abrexifunger identified having activity against 70% of C uh, Canada glabrata isolates with FKS mutation and noted that there was really only notable resistance if there was a deletion of the FKS2 gene. 
Currently, the company also states that it allows for rapid symptom relief with complete cure after receiving one day oral dose and is active against all candidate species that cause vulvovaginal candidiasis, including our azole resistant strains. It is not currently recommended for patients who are pregnant. What I will say is that there's not really a lot of literature available right now on Abrexa fungi, given its, its novelty. Um, however, we do have an informative interim analysis that was published on the FURY trial, which was a single arm phase three open label study. These patients were enrolled if they were intolerant to any treatments or had refractory disease and could not receive any other approved oral antifungal agents. It should be noted that the Interim analysis did not specifically mention what were the previously trialed antifungals before starting a Brexifungerp. These patients needed to be diagnosed with severe mucotanus or invasive candidiasis or chronic slash invasive aspergillus. For primary endpoints, they reviewed clinical improvement or progression of disease. For safety, they looked at death. Of note, we recall that Abrexa fungi is only currently FDA approved for the incidence of treatment of vulval vaginal candidiasis. However, in the ID world, we like to make things a little bit spicy. And so we're trying to use this for our systemic infections as well. Therefore, I'm going to highlight that the dose of Abrexa fungi of the 750 milligrams daily by mouth is higher than what we would expect for patients who would be using this for uh, vulval vaginal candidiasis. This also requires that they may be taking several pills at once in order to achieve this dose. In invasive candidiasis, we note that 62.5% of patients experience clinical improvement with only 7.1% experiencing a progression of disease. Similar trends are also found in our mucocutaneous candidiasis class as well. In contrast, we only achieved about a 50-50-ish response in our patients who had pulmonary aspergillus. But I do want to point out that this group only had approximately 10 patients, so it's kind of difficult to say exactly how well or how well this agent did not work in this population, and I think that warrants further studies. To round out this section, I want to briefly present the new azole agents that have come to the market, opalconazole and otessaconazole. The reason that they're not getting a larger spotlight is really because what you see here on the slide is pretty much what we're expecting for the future of these agents. So opaconazole being an inhaled azole therapy that we can use for aspergillus related to pneumonia. One of the benefits being that because it is an inhaled formulation, we negate some of those systemic side effects that you would expect from our azole therapy. Next is our tesoconazole, which is an oral agent indicated for the treatment of vulvovaginal candidiasis. And one key component I do want to bring attention to with otesiconazole is that it has some pretty profound drawbacks. It has an incredibly long half-life and a decent number of contraindications, given especially the disease that it's indicated for. Current studies have shown that this drug can last in the body for up to 180 days. It is currently contraindicated in females of reproductive potential, as well as pregnant and lactating women. This is due to the potential for fetal harm with a drug exposure window of approximately 690 days. It is also not recommended in patients with profound renal or hepatic impairment. So going back to our coverage of what the buckets in which we want to cover with our new agents, we see that we have achieved with Resifungin and Abrexifungerp two new agents that really help with tolerability and methods of administration. 
Although we managed to gain some coverage benefits in our spectrum activity with our echinocannon resistant species, we're still missing some coverage of, of, of our other aforementioned agents, including Cetosporum, Lamentospora, and Mucoralis. So will Lorifim and Phosmonangiopix be able to step up to the plate? And what can we hope to expect from these new mechanisms? First up to bat is, oh, so this is um, going back to the species that I wanted to highlight even more so, was that we note that we have pretty profound um, intermittent activity to our Canada glabrata species with really only some um, action or kind of candin and amphotericin B agents, which again are only offered in intravenous formulations. And we also um, only have some coverage of Canada auris with really our candins being the agent that has the most reliable coverage. And then Mucoralis really batten zero. Um, not many agents that we can use for this, except with the exception of posaconazole, asavaconazole, and amphotericin B. And we're really not getting much coverage on our more unique molds, including, again, as mentioned before, Fusarium, Cetosporum, and Lamentospora. Here is an overview of the graphic that we alluded to earlier, which shows our previous mechanisms with our echinocandins, our azoles, and our polyenes, and is now introducing our new medication, alorafim. Alorafim is a first in its class, arotamide. Its mechanism is to inhibit the dihydroorotate dehydrogenase, a key enzyme in the production of pyrimidines, which affects the cell wall and results in cell lysis. This should not affect human cells, so we can think of its mechanism similar to that of sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim, but in antifungal form. We should note that alorifim is not currently FDA approved. It has received orphan drug, fast track designation, and is actually the first antifungal agent to receive breakthrough therapy designation. It is currently seeking approval for invasive fungal infections, notably, again, a number of our molds that we discussed earlier. It also has an exceptional bio, oral bioavailability and is known to have good CNS distribution, which is unique from our other antifungal agents. It adds to the antifungal agents by, by tackling species that are resistant to our azoles and amphotericin B, but we do want to note that it lacks uh, activity to mucoralis as well as against some of our yeast species. It is available, again, in oral and an intravenous formulation, tackling some of our issues with administration. And when taken along our CYP3A4 inhibitors, a dose reduction may be required. However, this is navigable and permitting use with some of our key cancer and antiretroviral therapies and anti-rejection therapies. An interim analysis of a phase three open label study for alorifim was conducted, looking at patients who had proven invasive fungal infection or probable pulmonary invasive aspergillus. They enrolled in the study if there was limited treatment options for the condition. In this enrollment, they were able to have 100 patients, with 64% of the population being male, with a median age of 52 years. Additionally, 75% of them were deemed immunocompromised. For, with 46% of these uh, patients who were deemed immunocompromised, they either had a heme malignancy or a hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, because I just really wanted to continue to say hard words today. All right. So, of course, it would be fairly unreasonable to test this drug against a placebo because we acknowledge that they have an infection. And so we want to uh, make sure that they receive some kind of treatment. Otherwise, we'd expect a high amount of mortality, if not morbidity, for these patients. 
primary outcomes included overall response at day 42 and 84, and we're looking at all-cause mortality. For safety, we're just looking at general adverse effects for this medication. For dosing, we looked at 150 milligrams BID for just day one, and thereafter we did 90 milligrams BID. For analysis, I would like to highlight that nearly half of the patients at day 42 and also then at day 84 um, did not had overall success and overall response to this medication therapy, and we only saw all-cause mortality at day 42 for 14 percent and for at day 84 with 19 percent of our patients. With invasive aspergillus, aspergillosis, excuse me, patients, if the patient were to receive alorifem, only about one third of those patients experienced all-cause mortality. If the patient did not receive effective treatment, the all-cause mortality was 87% of those patients. These results showed that alorifem is efficacious in treating these otherwise untreatable fungal infections. For tolerability, it was noted that these patients really tolerated this medication quite well, even doing doses for up to two years of treatment. And they found that safety did not change as the duration of their treatment increased over time. They also looked at altered hepatic labs and were noted in only 8% of those population of the A population had some kind of hepatic change, although they could not directly attribute that to alorifem, and only 2% of the patients had to stop the medication as a result of this change in their hepatic, um, in their hepatic liver enzymes. Unfortunately, I was not able to find any case studies to kind of further bolster um, the efficacy and use of alorifem in our patients, so we'll be waiting for further results with bated breath. Next, we will be covering phosmonogepix. I know, you might be tempted just as I was to say Foss Mango Picks because mango is a wonderful fruit, but I have been told that the cool kids say Minoja Picks, so just get that in your head now. This is a prodrug that is active as an active agent of Minoja Picks, an inhibitor of the fungal enzyme GWT1. GWT1 is an inositol acyl transferase that is essential for trafficking and anchoring manoproteins to the fungal cell membrane and wall. Overall, it is well-tolerated with few drug-drug interactions with no notable evidence of drug-related nephrotoxicity and is available both oral and IV. We find that this adds spectrum to our azole and a kinocannon-resistant Canada species with the exception of Crucier and Glabrata. Not a lot of research has been done on this agent as well, with the Aegis study was a phase two open label study which looked at the treatment of invasive fungal infections caused by aspergillus species and rare molds. For primary endpoints, we looked at all-cause mortality at 42 days um, as well as um, at day 84. For safety, they primarily focused on the evidence of, of significant hepato dysfunction. Now, what you'd expect in my presentation is that I would be presenting to you results. Plot twist, I have no results. The study was terminated early in April of 2022, favoring the initiation of a phase three clinical trial. What this means is that we can use this as a surrogate to determine that phase two was probably going fairly well because they felt that it was good enough to continue into our phase three trial. What I do, however, have is from our literature search, a case study about a 26-year-old patient who was started on venetoclax and decitabine for relapsed acute myelogenous leukemia. She had received prophylactic posaconazole, 
oral levofloxacin and oral acyclovir. She was found to have a fungal blood infection for which she was put on amphotericin B and voriconazole. She fevered for 12 days, which was accompanied by hallucinations, likely secondary to the high dose of voriconazole that she was receiving. The blood culture tested positive for Fusarium lactis, and she was then transitioned to Phosmonogepix. Over time, her signs of infection, including fevers, slurred speech, tremors, and hallucinations resolved over the next seven to 10 days. She remained on Phosmonogepix orally for six months and maintained on her chemo regimen where she was able to achieve remission. So hopefully we'll be able to see similar kind of results and the results that are posted for our phase two, as well as our upcoming phase three trial. Now that I've briefly introduced all of the addition um, for each of our agents, I wanted to bring it all together in an, another wonderful graphic so that we're able to see where we're able to fill the gaps in our current antifungal coverage. We find that with we get great coverage of our cannabis species in Resifungin, Abrexifungerp, and Phosmonogepix, particularly in Canada albicans and oris, which were categorized by the WHO as being in the critical group and make up for quite a few fungal infections and have notable resistance. Additionally, all of these agents are covering Aspergillus. As a refresher, Aspergillus fumigatus was also rated in the critical group of fungi to watch per the WHO report. Finally, we get some reliable coverage of Fusarium, Cetosporum, and Lamentospora with Alorafim and Phosmonogepix. The antifungal puzzle is finally coming together with what we are needing, what we were needing from our previous traditional agents. We were able to develop four well-tolerated antifungals that all offer a better way for the medication to be administered, with three of the four being available in oral formulation and one of them with resifungin being able to be administered once weekly. We were also able to tackle a lot of our difficult to treat Canada as well as our molds. From this, uh, from this last part, we'd like to go into our last two questions that we have. Which of the following agents is currently FDA approved, underlined FDA approved, for invasive candidiasis? Alrighty, it looks like you all were paying attention. So um, the correct answer is resifungin. So resifungin is currently FDA approved for the treatment of invasive candidemia. Starting from A, A is incorrect because alorifem is actually still pending its FDA approval and will be actually working primarily on a number of our mold species and a number of other invasive uh, fungal infections. B is incorrect. Although we looked at the, the trial which stated that abrexifungrip had been studied for our patients who had candidiasis or invasive candidemia, it is not actually currently FDA approved for that indication. It is currently only FDA approved for vulvovaginal candidiasis. And then finally, opalconazole, which is our inhaled azole, which we're only using in the setting of aspergillus pneumonia. All right, now I'm really going to test you. This last question is going to be a matching question. So which of these new agents is expected to have, oh, which of these new agents is expected to have the broadest fungal coverage? Well, that's also a great question, but also these are going to be lining up with the different agents um, that we have discussed previously and which category that they would fall into. And then you'll get bonus points of you also get the question right for broadest spectrum of new agents. If I could give you bonus points. Okay, so the heat map's a little funky with this one. So for looking at which of the agents is most expected to have the broadest fungal coverage, uh, a good number of you are correct. Phosmonogepix would actually have the broadest spectrum of coverage for our antifungal agents that we have discussed currently. 
uh, Resifungin and Abrexafungar help with some of our resistant species that we mentioned previously, but really their biggest addition to our gap was not related to their spectrum coverage, but was really related to their um, administration ways. So when we're looking down the list of once weekly administration, I hopefully you'll leave this presentation knowing that Resifungin is a once weekly administration and is not inferior to Caspofungin. Our oral acanokindin-like medication is Abrexafungarp. Novel mechanism for the treatment of aspergillus would be alorafim, and our broadest spectrum of new agents, like I said, bonus points for a good number of you being phosphonogepics. So I covered quite a bit of information, and for those like me, really, who maybe haven't had a lot of work with our antifungal agents, I created a cheat sheet um, because I love cheat sheets. So as we go down in role of therapy, we'll look at for prophylaxis with with the thought of using a kind of candin, we'll be looking at our resifungin, again, given its once weekly administration. Next, we'll be looking at inpatient IV options for a multi-drug resistant candida species, which will be relying on phosmonosia picks for this. For outpatient treatment of difficult to treat candida species, we'll be looking at abrexafungarp and resifungin, as we've noted that these have better action against our azole and echinocannin resistant candida species, and that the abrexafungarp can be given orally, while resifungin again is a once weekly infusion. Aspergillus infection, we're looking at alorifem, really introducing a new mechanism of action to tackle um, this fungi. And then finally, for the treatment of our more rare molds, we're looking at Fusarium, Cetosporum, and Lamentospora. We're going to be relying on Alorifem and Phosmonogepix. Again, remembering that Alorifem and Phosmonogepix are still pending FDA approval. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Oh,